Hi, this is David Leach of the UVix Department of Writing. The following interview took place as part of a series of conversations I had with authors and other guest experts on the topic of memory and the creative process in my Writing 501 graduate MFA seminar. We hope you enjoy. Hi, I am thrilled to welcome a special guest today. Dr. Stephen Lindsay is a professor of cognitive psychology at the University of Victoria and a leading expert in the scientific study of human memory. He completed his undergraduate degree at Reed College and did his graduate degrees at Princeton. In 1991, he joined the Department of Psychology uh, at UVic. Professor Lindsay has published hundreds of academic papers and book chapters. This is the co-author of the textbook Psychology, the Adaptive Mind, and has been the editor of Psychological Science in the Journal of Experimental Psychology General. His research as the director of the Lindsay Lab at UVic uh, tends to focus on the relationship between memory, current performance, and illusory feelings of remembering, such as false memories, deja vu, but many, many other aspects. And I'm really thrilled uh, to welcome Steve. Welcome, Steve. Thank you for that uh, gracious introduction, David. It's a, a pleasure to be joining you. Okay, well, let's start by uh, just quickly exploring your own memories. What's your first memory of becoming interested or maybe kind of self-consciously aware of the phenomenon of memory? Well, you know, my parents were into humanistic psychology and the human potential movement and so forth. So uh, as a teenager, I was into psychology, but I don't think I really got particularly drawn to memory uh, until I was in, in graduate school. As an undergrad and my first part of, of grad school, I was mostly focusing on children's cognitive development, not really with a particular focus on memory. But while I was there, I, uh, in graduate school, uh, I changed advisors to Marcia Johnson, who's a, a very renowned memory researcher. And what I remember first really grabbing me uh, about that was a a paper about Beth Loftus's research on eyewitness memory. And it, this paper came out in 1985, and it was challenging Loftus's claims about, uh, basically her claims about what her data meant. And that was the first time I remember becoming so uh, wrapped up and engaged with a scientific problem that, uh, that it made it hard to sleep at times or that I would find myself thinking about it, you know, in the middle of dinner or having a shower, that kind of thing. <clears throat> Great. Well, if possible, can you give us um, like a capsule summary of the, the current scientific consensus around how human memory works? Or are there still kind of many competing models for understanding memory's function amongst psychologists? I think there's I think the dominant framing is one that emphasizes uh, neuroscience and uh, emphasizes structures of the brain. Uh, so I think a lot of psychologists uh, think in terms of particular regions of the brain supporting memory and, I don't know, very structural kind of way of, of, of thinking about memory. And, you know, presumably memory has something to do with synaptic connections in those, those uh, brain regions. 
My perspective, I think, is not not dominant. It's uh, not to say I'm the only person who takes this view, but I take a more functionalist kind of view. So we try to understand uh, memory and remembering and other other mental states in terms of their their functional properties. That must be just terribly vague. <laughs> no, 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 it's great. I mean, I, we've been uh, reading a, a little bit, and uh, again, uh, from kind of a lay perspective, about the concept of reconsolidation and, and this kind of notion that's often new to people that the act of remembering can affect or reshape memories rather than simply kind of retrieving them uh, from storage like digital uh, files. Can you talk to us a little bit about this concept? Sure. And the first thing I want to say on that, it's not exactly what you're asking, but I think it's an important and interesting point that for most of us, most of the moments of our lives, most of the experiences we've had, we never recollect. They happened. We don't, for whatever reason, we don't uh, later recollect them, and we probably never will most of our lives are, is in fact sort of in the shadow. It's sort of like, you know, the stuff behind your head that you don't see, you don't really notice that you don't see it, but, but you don't see it. And a good way of driving that point is to think about uh, elementary school. Uh, and all of those hours and hours you spent in, in elementary school, how many experiences can you tell me about? Now there are individual differences in this. Some people, remember a lot more than others, but most people have a handful, a collection of, of episodic experiences that they can recollect. And I think part of the reason for that, and this now comes back to your question, has to do with this notion of consolidation. Um, so I, th I think that that's an important notion. It seems that unless you've recollected a particular experience within a relatively small number of hours or maybe days since it occurred, the likelihood that you will ever recollect it steeply declines. And the, and the sort of the kind of specificity of cues you would need in order to recollect it goes up. So, so that, that's consolidation and, and, and the way that's often described again by like the neuroscience people is as though there was a thing, maybe in the hippocampus or something that uh, is stored and is retrieved. And in the process of being retrieved then becomes uh, susceptible to being uh, edited. And then it's put back. And then when it's retrieved again, it will be in the edited form, right? That's the, the basic claim. I don't think that's quite right. I think it's more complicated than that. The mind brain is capable of giving rise to thoughts and images and feelings that we uh, may interpret and experience as recollections of a, of a past event. And when we do that, we create new memories of remembering. So remembering is a, an iterative process. It's not really that you've retrieved this little video and then edited it and put it back. It's that you uh, have 
generated a new experience, the experience of recollecting, which will not 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 necessarily map perfectly onto what the original experience was. And now you sort of have both. The system has representation of your earlier initial experience, but also representation of your reconstruction of, of that experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it's almost like, is it almost like these layers of memory kind of translate that don't quite map onto, but you're kind of seeing through them all at the same yeah, time? I, I think that's a very, that's a very good, a very good metaphor. It's like, like layers and there's a lot of overlap and there'll be a, a, a Endel Tolding called it uh, ecphory. You get sort of an echo uh, when in response to a cue that will be the the central tendencies, the the overlapping parts. So, and this is one of the things I bet everybody is at some level aware of. When you get together with family, year in year out, people tell the same stories over and over again, uh, and sometimes with like the same words and the same way of telling the story because they. They may, you know, they're they're what they're doing is partly remembering their prior tellings. Oh, interesting, interesting. So, so there's a ritualized kind of telling element to it as well. Yeah. Well, your your dissertation, your later research, have focused on what's uh, known in the field as the source monitoring framework, and and often errors associated with source monitoring in memories. Um, this is a technical term. What is source monitoring and how is it related to phenomena like false memories or deja vu or other memory phenomenons? And even if you could give us some examples of how source monitoring works or doesn't. Yeah, I, I think in a, in a way, it's unfortunate that we use the word monitoring. There are sort of historical reasons for that, but monitoring maybe is a little bit misleading, but the basic idea is that moment by moment, your the mind brain is generating a complex dance of thoughts and images and ideas and feelings. Uh, images, some of, of them are driven by your uh, perceptual senses, some of them are rising from memory, thoughts, uh, uh, maybe some of them may be driven by memory or new ideas. There's this sort of constant seething, boiling, intermingling, and you're attending to some of it and ignoring others. And it, there's sort of this ongoing activity. And, and moment to moment at various levels of precision, the system is making inferences about the origins of its own contents. The system is making inferences about the origins of its own contents. Why am I thinking this or, you know, or I'm, I'm, and it's not, it's not that it's not a conscious inference. Most of the time, it, it just does make the inference. So we think that we're seeing something and usually we are seeing something, but every now and then, we've uh, misperceived something, we've imagined something, and we mistakenly uh, attributed something that's really a product of fantasy, say, to a, a product of perception. 
Well, interesting. We, we, we encountered the topic of, uh, it was described as prosthetic memory in one of our other readings in which we kind of misremember, uh, say, sort of images from a film that we've seen as our own memory. Would that be an example of like a source monitoring Ex error? Exactly. Exactly. That's a very nice, uh, a very nice example. Oh. And, and part of our thinking is that almost all of our memories of, of past experiences are really kind of blends of, of uh, thoughts and images and feelings that are tightly tied to the original experience and thoughts and images and ideas and feelings that are that are really like inferences or they're from some other experience or they're from a movie you saw or whatever. So we're very often combining uh, elements from, from multiple sources. Oh, interesting. How does it, how does your work or others' work on source monitoring intersect with questions of, say, memory and trauma or memory and PTSD in any ways? Well, the, it, as you probably know, there uh, was a huge controversy in the late '80s and early '90s about recovered memories of, of childhood sexual abuse, and uh, I was and my colleague Don Reed and I were very heavily involved in that. And there's actually a, a local Victoria Angle, and there's a book, a uh, popular book called Michelle Remembers that uh, was sort of a tale of satanic abuse and recovered memories and, and all of those things. So that was a super intense, uh, complicated issue that needs to be dealt with, I think, very uh, delicately and in a uh, I don't know, diplomatic way. Um, because of course, real abuse is a much bigger problem than, than false memories of abuse. Uh, but we were nonetheless concerned that at that time there was quite a bit of popularity in the therapy community for approaches to therapy that encouraged people to try to remember abuse, uh, which when misapplied could potentially be really, really suggestive. So that, that, that's one way of responding. You, you particularly asked like about PTSD and, and trauma. Uh, so, you know, those are cases in which there's real trauma. And, and really, I would have to say, I'm, I feel less of an expert there. I'm not a clinical psychologist. I don't have a traumatology background. And, and there's sort of ongoing debate about the extent and the ways in which uh, memories, say, of, of people who've been through combat or have been in some otherwise, other ways, greatly traumatized, whether whether there's a qualitative difference in, in the way their memories work, or if it's more just normal memory mechanisms, but under extraordinary conditions. Okay, great. Thank you. I, in your paper for the Canadian psychologist, you write about autobiographical memory, which obviously is of kind of great interest to us as, as writers, and eyewitness mm. su suggestibility, like the intrusions of memory from one source into reports of another. Can you talk to us uh, about the research into eyewitness suggestibility and issues of the fallibility of, of eyewitness memory in, in different situations? Uh, sure. This, is, this has been a, a area of active research for decades, uh, going back to the early research in the 1970s uh, by Beth Loftus, uh, but, but continuing to this day. 
and and I would say with a nice sort of progression of better quality science and, and research that has more uh, practical applicability than than was early the case, and. Uh, and, and I would say that a nuanced view of that literature uh, indicates that people sometimes have false memories, uh, that people sometimes think, for example, that they witnessed something that they, they only heard about or that they only inferred or, or imagined, uh, and, and that people can be very confident when they're uh, in false memories. But on the other hand, that people don't always have false memories uh, and that, that confidence uh, under, uh, at least under some conditions, confidence, even though it's not perfect, uh, is reasonably predictive of, of accuracy. So this, I would say the current literature suggests kind of a balanced perspective. So we don't take an extreme and say, you can't believe anything anybody, any witness tells you about what they saw, but that you have to, you have to think about what uh, Deb Poole and I called the, the uh, chain of custody of the report. So what influences was the, the person uh, exposed to? What kinds of suggestions might undermine your confidence in, in the report? Okay, yeah, I, you sort of answered it, but you, you, you mentioned elsewhere that a better understanding of how memory works can contribute to better ways of interviewing people in different circumstances, mm -hmm. which again is, is of interest for writers, especially in the field of, of nonfiction, but any kind of research. Can you talk more about these potential practical applications of your research into memory? Are there just even like tips for, for writers or people interviewing uh, people about their memories and eyewitness experiences to get the most accurate results? Yeah, you know, I would, I would definitely recommend uh, that uh, people who do journalistic interviews should look at the work of uh, Ron Fisher and Ed Geiselman on something called the cognitive interview. Uh, which you know, they developed a long time ago, in the 80s at least. Um, and, and they, they self-consciously drew on cognitive psychology to develop an approach to interviewing cooperative witnesses. So this is a, a technique that the police are often trained in um, and, and it, it applies to cases in which you have somebody who is, is keen to help the police and it's a set of techniques for, for working with them. And it has several components. And I, and I, I mean, I bet a lot of these will, are things that you already know. Uh, but, but one of them is the importance of the initial rapport building phase where the, the police officer, or in this case, the, the journalist uh, establishes a, a sort of a friendly, respectful, uh, attentive relationship with, with the subject. So rapport building is, is really crucial. And then there's a phase in which you attempt to empower the person as a uh, source of information. So you ask the person, you don't necessarily go to the hard part of what you want to interview them about. You instead um, ask them to tell you about things that, that 
you have reason to believe would be easier for them to tell you. Does that make sense? So you, you get them talking and, and get them in the role of sort of driving the, the conversation. Mm-hmm. Another thing is that you tell them, uh, I, you know, then you introduce the top, the main topic of interest and you, you uh, say, I wasn't there. You know, you're, you know about it because you were there. So I, I want to know what you remember about that. Even little things, things that might seem unimportant to you, I would like to, to hear. Don't guess or make anything up, but even if it seems un, unimportant, please tell me everything you can. Start at the beginning and, and go. So there, you know, you're trying to empower the person as the source and you're telling them even small things. So, because people do what's called output monitoring. So right now I'm doing it like crazy. I'm trying to figure out what do these people need to hear? What should I withhold? Uh, so you want, uh, at least the police, they want they want to get as much as they can, right? Yeah, and so you're, just, you're trying to avoid imposing your own kind of narrative, even unconsciously, by, exactly. by what you're asking or what you're looking for. Well, well. and you're also, you're, you are trying to avoid imposing your own narrative and you're also, uh, oh, making a real effort to put them in charge. Mm-hmm. And then the next part is the hardest part. So you say, so please tell me everything you can remember. And then you shut up. And I mean, you have eye contact, you're looking at them, you're nodding, and you just try to be quiet. And turns out this is very difficult because we're used to, you know, in our everyday life, we have these conversations that bounce back and forth and both people are, you know, sort of a dance that, that where you are both determining where, where the conversation is going. Um, and the, when you have a police officer and a, a, a witness, then, you know, there's a authority imbalance and they tend to interrupt, right? So the person is talking about one aspect of the crime and the cop is going, well, what did he look like? So, oh, oh, what did he look like? Okay. So you, you know, terrible. <laughs> so I, I would think that this probably is a good approach too. So you let, and, and you tolerate silences. A long pause. And then you say something like, can you tell me any more? And then you shut up. <laughs> uh, and you, they, you, you know, eventually you may then go to questions. Like, you didn't tell me about the appearance. You told me there was somebody, but can you tell me anything about the appearance or something like that? Wow, so you continue trying not to impose. So you don't say like, did he have a beard or something like that, which is quite suggestive. So you try, but and you move to progressively more. Uh, specific questions okay yeah so yeah being a good listener which is remarkably hard okay it is hard yeah (laughs) Uh, another question and this is going to ties into a little bit what we were talking today how do visual technologies photographs film video now especially the internet uh impact as either source monitoring or a sense of memory maybe i'll give you a little a little anecdote i've got a memory 
and I know it's kind of tied to to a photograph of of um, early Christmas with my parents. My younger brother was just one or two, so it was one of our first Christmases in in Ottawa. And I can remember kind of looking at this this uh, photograph of us all together opening presents or whatever. But only years later, I think it was maybe 20, 25 years later, my my mom admitted who she's an avid photographer that she had done all of these these uh, photos of our uh, my brother's first Christmas. Uh, and only at the end of the day realized that the, the film hadn't caught. This was a well pre-digital film hadn't caught. So the next day she rewrapped all of the presents, put us back into our pajamas, and then retook Christmas Day photos because having those photos were so important to her memory. And yet my memory was associated with these essentially fabricated photos. Uh, <laughs> the question again is like uh, visual technologies are so yeah. prevalent. What are, what are their, what is the kind of study of their impact on our sense of memory? That's, that's a, that's a wonderful anecdote. I love that. There, there's a, a little bit of uh, mixed uh, messaging, I would say uh, some of which I won't mention, but I, I will mention uh, here's, here's a fun thing. One of the studies I was involved in, uh, which was really led by Marianne Gary. Uh, but we, we uh, got from parents photographs of university students when the university students were little kids, right? And we got um, two different, you know, photos of different events. And then we also got from the parents confirmation that to the best of their knowledge, their son or daughter had never been in a hot air balloon. And we used Photoshop to take a photo of, a real photo of the subject when he or she was a child and put that into the basket of a hot air balloon. <laughs> and uh, so when you're interviewing people, you put down, first it's you know a, a, a real photo can you tell me about, about this childhood event? And usually they can tell you something. And can you tell me about this one? And then you can put down the false one and almost all of them go, ah, I don't remember that. But if you work with them, you can get about half, at least in this study, we got about half of the people appeared to, after a couple of days of working on remembering this, appear to uh, come to believe that they remember being uh, on, on doing this hot air balloon thing. So that, that, that fits, I think, with your story. But here's the kicker. There's a, a movie called, I think it's called Waltz with Bashir. Oh, we were the, literally, that's our, our, the, the film for today. So that we were just uh, watching. You're kidding. Yeah. Oh, well, and did you watch the whole film? I, I, everybody watched it before and we had a kind of presentation. Oh, well, then you know that the film, there's this part of that film where the psychiatrist is explaining to the guy about how these researchers did this study uh, in which they suggested to people that they had gone up in a, in a hot air balloon. That's right. And in the movie, the psychiatrist says that all of them had false memories. <laughs> but it really, did. in our study, Study. I mean, for one thing, there wasn't a very large number. I think it was 24 people or something. And half of them were categorized as having uh, false memories. So we actually wrote to the person who did the film to ask, when you said 
that they were all false memories. Was that a false memory uh, or was that artistic license? But we did not get a reply. He did not get a reply. Interesting. <laughs> Uh, similar to that, we often talk these these days about uploading our memory into our devices or into the cloud. Yeah. I, I literally tell people, oh, you've got to email me that. I have no memory except in email. And at the same time, we increasingly worry about our reliance on technology as, as an extension of our consciousness. And, and maybe it's negatively affecting both our capacity for long-term uh, memory and, and autobiographical memory. Is there any kind of truth to those concerns? Is there danger in, or is there a danger in using those kind of technological metaphors for memory? Are we losing our memory to technology? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's unlikely that we're losing our memories to technology, but our, but our memories are probably changing. I mean, back uh, when uh, uh, reading was first becoming more prominent, there was big concern that, that people would lose the ability to memorize because, you know, a pre-literate culture, there's a lot more emphasis on rote memorization as a way of preserving culturally important stories and, and so forth. Plato thought writing and reading would be a disaster for us. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and, and, you know, I think that's just not true. Uh, having external memories, you can think of a library or Google as an external memory. Uh, and, you know, seems to work pretty well. And, and I, I don't think there's any evidence that people uh, remember the important parts of their lives any less. Okay. Often when people hear I study memory, they immediately think about memorization uh, because they're aware that they forget phone numbers or you know, that kind of thing. But I'm, I'm not interested in memorization. Almost everything we remember never set out to remember it we remember it because we lived it and it matters to us and we get cued to think about it and, and so forth and, and I, I just don't think that's that's going to change so we may well certainly like i can't tell you my partner's phone number with confidence because i just you know say call moira and it calls her so so my my repertoire of phone numbers is crap compared to what it was but who cares Okay. Uh, memories, as we've talked about, can be unreliable. Uh, so, of course, can academic research. Can you talk a little bit about your, how your discipline has been addressing issues around the, the replication of findings and, and building public confidence, maybe rebuilding public confidence in the results of, of research in, in psychology and, and memory? Well, I'm so, I'm so glad that, that you've asked that, David, because this really is my, my big passion these days is trying to contribute to the methodological reform movement. Um, and uh, this, I would say, started around 2011, uh, became wider and wider awareness that there are major problems with the way, I would say not even just social sciences, the life sciences, sciences that use inferential statistics uh, to make inferences about reality. Um, had many scientists, myself included, who did not really adequately understand those statistical techniques and were abusing them in ways that, that systematically exaggerate estimates of effects, that is the effect of one thing on another, or the strength of relationships tend to be exaggerated when we 
misuse statistics in, in these ways. Um, so there's there's a number of efforts that that uh, are underway to reduce reduce those those problems. And I and I think I think things are really going pretty well. So um, um, uh, for example, getting people to make a written record in advance of what their predictions are and of what their measures and analyses are going to be. Nobody used to do that. And now, you know, I think it's still a minority, but more and more it's becoming more normative to, for people to, to uh, do that. Data sharing is more widespread. Uh, other, other interventions that are intended to, to increase rep replicability. Okay, great. Well, well th uh, thank you. I'm going to kind of open things up for questions. Just a, a, a second, but my, my final question. I mean, what do you what do you hope to be most remembered for as uh, a professor? Mm. Well, as a yeah, I'm a professor, I, that makes me think of my graduate students, and I guess I would want I don't know to be uh, remembered as a, a a positive force, somebody who helped help them develop. Skills and values that, uh, uh, that, that promote science, and in, in I don't know, sort of more widely as a researcher, I guess I would like to to uh, be remembered as somebody who did contribute both to the resolution of the what are sometimes called the memory wars uh, about recovered memories, and and contributed to this methodological reform movement. Great, thank you, Steve. Thank you.